0: Welcome guys and gals to The Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. This podcast is definitely going to focus in heavy on the love and relationship side as I have Mr. Nate Bagley joining me today. And uh, Nate is actually a relationship educator, speaker, writer, and researcher. His mission in life is to rid the world of mediocre love. And he's a Gottman-trained leader for the Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work program. Uh, And he's also the creator of the Loveumentary podcast, Unbox Love, The first seven years and the one percent club. So on this podcast, we are going to dive into uh, a few different topics. We're going to definitely, you know, we we kick things off by talking about marriage. um, You know, some of the challenge with it, why maybe it's still relevant for some people and not relevant for others these days. Uh, We're going to talk about what makes relationships stagnant. How come? Why they become mediocre uh, and how to actually escape that trap? Because most people. Are looking for a very comfortable sense within the relationship, and it can often be the the thing that pulls the relationship down. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about how to move your relationship into an exceptional place. Some of the tools that are there. Uh, we're actually going to address conflict as well, which is a, a really really great topic. So how to actually deal with. Uh, face and bring up conflict within the communication within your relationship, uh, and we're going to share some some tools and resources for you on how to actually uh, broach some of these tougher conversations and subjects with your partner. So, just a, a quick housekeeping note: don't forget to head on over to Facebook and join the Man Talks community. We've got over well close to about four thousand men in there now from around the world, and we have some incredible conversations. Uh, So if you are looking to connect with some men in your community or you are simply wanting to learn more about yourself, uh, about fatherhood or fitness or finances, it is definitely a space to play in. Uh, And and lastly, uh, two things. We've got an event coming up October 29th in Toronto. You'll definitely want to join uh, if you show up. Uh, We are being supported by Saks Underwear, which is incredible. It's so comfortable. I wear it myself. Um, But just for buying a ticket and showing up at the event, you'll get a free pair of boxers, um, which is absolutely amazing. So uh, as always, men and women are welcome. So ladies, definitely come join us. Uh, and, and finally, we are starting a we're completely revamped the Alliance and we're going to be uh, launching a whole new program on November 1st. And I would love for you to be a part of it, um, to come and work with me and come and work with a uh, an incredible group of guys. And we focus in on mindset. We focus in on leadership and relationships, uh, business development, fitness, health, finances, the whole thing. Uh, it's very action oriented and it uh, really helps every single person take action in their life. And the guys that have joined the program before have really yielded some incredible results in all areas of their life. So head on over to mantox.com forward slash the dash alliance. Or if you could just go to the main page, uh, the alliance is right at the very top. And I would love to have you in the group. Uh, we've also made it very uh, affordable For anyone in any financial position to join us. So, I look forward to seeing you uh, in that group. So, without any further delay, this is a really, really, really deep dive into relationships, uh, into marriage, into how you can be the best husband possible. So, don't forget to man it forward. Definitely, this is a podcast episode that is worth listening with your partner. So, take a listen through. Um, and, and definitely, you know, press play with them or send it to them so that they can listen to it. And the two of you can discuss, uh, but without any further delay, please
1: welcome Mr. Nate Bagley. Dude, Connor. So good to be here.
0: I'm excited to have this conversation. You know, I think relationships are something that we as men all want to win at sometimes don't know how to win, but, uh, but I think this is going to be a great resource for, for the men and women that tune into this show. So I'm, I'm excited
1: thanks, man. I'll do my best to make it a great resource.
0: yeah yeah no no pressure right <laughs> um, great, so let's just kick things off by by diving straight into the to the question the the question uh, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today
1: yeah so i I've been a relationship nut for a really long time since before I was actually in a long term committed relationship I, I started my own podcast about six or seven years ago and was I traveled all over the country interviewing couples and relationship experts about what makes extraordinary love like what what did extraordinary couples do that people who didn't have awesome love were missing out on and so i, I started this as a single guy and then several years after i started the podcast I, I started to consider myself to be quite the expert i kind of i i knew what was required to create an amazing relationship and ended up falling in love with one of my best friends and She and I had been friends for years and years and just I had so much trust and love for her. And for several reasons, well, we ended up getting engaged. And for several reasons, the the relationship didn't work out. And I was I had to kind of come face to face with my greatest fears, which is like, you know, you put years and years of of work and learning and education into trying to figure out how to create an amazing relationship, and even you can't make it work. Is it even possible? I remember one moment after we broke up. Literally, this is maybe I don't know too much of a glimpse into my world, but I was laying in the shower with the water running over me, just like sobbing for an hour in a puddle of my own snot, just feeling like like my biggest hopes and dreams of being in an amazing relationship were over. That eventually, I, I started to heal and get over it and um, get over the breakup and. And I had to kind of take my own medicine. I had to learn that, you know, sometimes relationships don't work out. And I had to go through the steps of healing, some of which I learned from your fiance (laughs) from Vienna. She did a whole podcast uh, episode for me uh, or with me on how to heal after a breakup. And, I went through that process and I had to realize that just because you fail at accomplishing your dream doesn't mean you can't still accomplish it. So I got back in the game and started dating again and ended up marrying the most amazing woman. And we're we're married now and we have the most incredible relationship. And I'm so glad that I was able to persevere after such a, a, a failure, what felt like such a failure. You know, like... I, I felt like I had the whole world, my entire community, looking at me and cheering me on in this in this re- other relationship and saying, "Oh, this is so great! You're you're getting married. It's going to be so incredible." And then when they saw me fail, like I I was humiliated, and being able to pick myself back up and show people that it's possible to recover after something like that, I think um, is one definitely one of my defining moments.
0: Yeah, that's amazing, man. I mean, I, I appreciate your your honesty and transparency, and it, I think it's very relatable. You know, whenever we have and expertise doesn't matter what your field is, right? I think you know I've interviewed a lot of people who are experts in their own field, whether it's finance, whether it's you know dealing with anxiety or relationships or uh, you know business growth and development. All of those people at some point have had you know sort of a, a catastrophic fail, you know, just yeah. just a just a, coll- just a collapse in some way, shape, or form. And it's it's tough because it's a huge part of our identity. You know, it's like here here we are. And, and even with myself, like when I started man talks, there was, you know, there's a, a good amount of that for myself. I've definitely ex- experienced and faced that within my own life. Um, but, you know, whenever, whenever you are an expert in a field and you're teaching and, and, you know, preaching certain things, and then you have a failure like that, it can feel even more disastrous. So, oh, yeah. so from, from your experience, because I'm sure that there's other people out there that have gone through this or that are going through it right now, just quickly, what were some of the things that helped you integrate some of those lessons and, and, and carry on and actually become stronger because of it?
1: Yeah, I, one of the best pieces of advice, I don't remember who gave this to me, but you know, you hear people say, oh, you just got to take it one day at a time or whatever. And for me, one day at a time was still sometimes too much when when my heart was hurting that badly. And for me, it was taking things one breath at a time. Sometimes it was just like focusing on breathing. Sometimes it was... Just focusing on on maintaining my own identity, like spending time around friends and family members who loved and supported me, and who still believed in my vision and, and in my capacity to accomplish my goals, uh, those were huge things that helped me kind of continue to move forward. And then giving my, myself some time off, I took some time away to to heal and to process everything that had been going on. Um, went to therapy for a little while, like just. I think sometimes we don't allow ourselves space to grieve the thing that we lose or or we don't allow ourselves time to process the difficulty of a situation. And sometimes life is just so crazy that it doesn't allow you a whole lot of space for that. But just sometimes it, it it's worthwhile to start saying no to to good things so you can create space for the necessary things. And I think that was a huge help for me in that time is is learning how to just like carve out the appropriate time and space for myself to heal and then to get involved in, in meaningful work that that reminded me of my worth and my value.
0: Nice. I, I like that. I really like the statement of say, saying no to the good things so you can make room for the necessary things. Because sometimes those aren't one and the same. And in those types of spaces, especially, they can be very challenging to make room for the things that are necessary you know, for for our heart, for our soul, for our you know our, our gut, our physical well being, our mental well being, um, you know, when our when our brain's like, just push forward, you know, just just keep going, and you know, I think one of the things that comes up for me is there's a there's a great not lost art, it's still very uh, it's still very prominent, but in in Japanese culture, there's something called kintsugi, and kintsugi is the art of repairing with gold, yeah. and you know, if you have um, you have a bowl that breaks or a plate that breaks and you you repair it with 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 gold lining and so it becomes this beautiful and intricate piece of art just out of a you know a broken bowl and i think in in these types of situations where we know that we are living our purpose and we know that we're you know an expert in a field or we're you know we're pursuing our dreams and bring them into reality and we have a failure there really is an opportunity for us to take the time to actually reassemble the broken pieces in such a way that it's more powerful, stronger, and, and more beautiful than before. So I really, I really love and appreciate your story, man.
1: Thanks, man. It, I, I look back on it now and I'm so grateful for it because it has provided me with so much more context and so much more empathy for other people who've been through similar events. Like it, it's funny when I was a single guy doing all this stuff, you know, people would come up to me and be like, Well, how can you know so much about marriage if you're single? And I was like, okay, yeah, I I get that. I totally understand. And then when I was in a great relationship, people would say, Oh, you can't understand my pain right now going through this divorce or <laughs> going through this breakup because you've never been through a breakup like this. And and now I have context for both of those things. I get what it's like to be in a relationship. I get what it's like to go through a horrible breakup. And I, I'm I'm grateful for the brokenness. Like I'm grateful I got broken so I could be put back together and, and now be able to to relate to so many more people on their level. So it's mm,
0: that's good. It's that's good. It's powerful. Well, yeah. I want to get into a bunch of stuff What's today. Mean, I want to talk. I want to talk about marriage. I want to talk about uh, you know mediocre relationships, uh, not how to achieve them, but how to move past them, <laughs> and <laughs> and, a, and a few and a few other things. Um, but but first, you know, it's interesting. I run a community of of men called the Man Talks community. We've got almost four thousand guys in there from around the world. And last night, actually, I put a post up that was talking about uh, wedding wedding bands, like wedding rings for guys. Cause I've started to look into what I wanna have. And so I asked all the men in the community, you know, what, what type of ring do you have? Why did you choose it? How do you make it uniquely yours? And it was cool because all the guys were sharing their bands and what it meant to them and why they chose it and, and what their marriage meant to them. It really sort of exuded uh, through the through the choice that they have and their personalities were embodied in those in some degree. But one of the guys actually had a really interesting comment. He had been married before, and uh, and his his response was was basically to, to summarize something along the lines of, "Well, I don't I don't believe in the sanctimony of marriage anymore," and so like, I I don't really have much to say on this topic. And I kind of got into it with him just asking why and inquiring why that was. And, you know, he he made an interesting point that in today's culture and society, um, some from his perspective, that marriages have have sort of become outdated. I was like, oh, this is interesting. So I wanted to get your perspective as somebody that's, you know, an, an expert in relationships. Why marriage? Why is marriage still so important? If people aren't Religious, and they're not getting married for religious reasons. In your perspective, what would still be the uh, the purpose, the need, the function of marriage in, in current culture?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like the purpose of marriage has evolved over time. You know, if you go far enough back, it was very much a it was a, a power exchange. You know, you would marry into a family to create. A treaty, or to to inherit lands, and there's been uh, points in time where marriage was very much a religious institution. And today, I feel like, in very large part, marriage is how would I put it? I I like what David Schnarch says. He says marriage is the ultimate human growth machine. Uh, He has this book called Passionate Marriage, and he talks about how the reason that we get married today, you know, the reasons that we get married have changed and evolved. And one of the best reasons to get married today is to to be pressured into personal growth. I think a lot of people get married for the wrong reasons and they they learn to stay married for the right reasons. And I don't think that there's any institution or any type of relationship that will force you to grow and become the best version of yourself like marriage. So yeah. it, it may not be because you're religious and it may not be because you you know you're looking for a woman's dowry or you're looking to make some sort of economic exchange and and gain uh, her father's inheritance or something like that. Yeah those reasons don't really exist anymore or at least not for a lot of people. But the reason I would say to get married now in the in the current landscape of the world is to be the best version of yourself.
0: Yeah, I, I like I like that perspective. You know, I think that relationships really do turn into being they, they turn into being a mirror, you know, for us to really see ourselves. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, they can get easily jaded or, or become bitter on relationships because they start to see the parts of themselves that they don't want to see. You know, yeah. that they don't want to acknowledge that are very clearly there. And and it becomes a situation of it it being easier to blame the other person or you know project their project their shadow onto their partner, and so I, I think that that's why a lot of marriages end up falling apart. And there's numerous numerous reasons which we're going to get into. But um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of get that perspective. So on on that note, just to dig into that a little bit deeper, what about relationships? creates that space for growth for that transformation what is it about relationships specifically that does that
1: yeah i think when you're sharing your life with somebody you get ex- you get a, you have to take a really close look at yourself because you're breathing the same air you're like uh, sharing the same bed you're you know sh- sharing sharing the bills you're and you're just kind of like forced to be on top of each other what's which, which puts a whole um it puts a whole new type of pressure on you you know you you get exposed not only do your virtues get exposed and uh you get to rely on your strengths to make your your relationship work but also a lot of your weaknesses get exposed and magnified and you have to come face to face with the fact that you know living by yourself is easy if you leave your dirty laundry around or if you like don't flush the toilet or put the toilet seat down or if you you know leave something gross in the fridge or you don't do your dishes like you walk in the house and and you know whose stuff that is you don 't have anybody to blame, but when you 're living with somebody else and they do those things or you don't do those things and they live there and it bothers them, man, you start to realize how how imperfect you are and how maybe impatient you are or how not punctual you might be, or how quick you are to judge or how much you lack empathy or how easy it is to um, to assume the worst of somebody instead of assuming the best of them or how easy it is for you to take on somebody else's stress or frustration or anxiety and, and make it, make it your own and make it about you. And you start Mm -hmm. to realize that you have all these, all these weaknesses, both like the simple things and the more complex emotional things. And I don't know, I I feel like once you're thrown into that relationship, once you're thrown into that situation, it exposes you in a way to opportunities for you to grow that you would never be exposed were you on your own.
0: Nice. Yeah. So you kind of start to meet the different parts of yourself. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Different parts of yourself that you've either subconsciously or intentionally been avoiding meeting. Mm.
0: Yeah. Okay. And and some of those parts that you start to meet, like, uh, I'm sure that you've, I, I, you know, I think you've gone through like the Gottman Institute and you, you know, you've worked, you've worked in that field and I'm sure you're familiar with like internal family systems and parts works and stuff like that. But how do some of these like, there's two parts to this question that I want to ask. How do these parts get created within us? And and secondly, why is it important for us to understand the parts that are at work within us?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of those parts inside of us, um, we kind of have these, this inner narrative. We have these stories that go on in our heads. And and Vienna talks about this a lot. Uh, she talks about your, your personal narrative. And I think when you're in a relationship, you start... When you're by yourself it's hard to identify your inner narrative it's harder because the narrative that you have is just about yourself and when your thoughts are only about yourself it's kind of in an echo chamber and you don't have a whole lot to compare it against i don't know like you don't you don't have another person that really gets to hear that narrative or see it and then either agree with it or contradict it when you're in Mm. your when you're in a relationship your inner narrative is about you, but it's also about your partner and your relationship. And the narrative comes through, whether it's the critical version of you or the self-doubt or the encourager, or, you know, there's all these different voices in your head that say like, yes, you can do it. Or no, you can't, or this is stupid. Or she's doing this, making you miserable on purpose. Or she, you know, she, she's so amazing. I can't, I can't believe I'm so so lucky to be with her. Like there's all these voices in your head that kind of justify or give you reasons for why certain things are happening in your relationship. And when you're with somebody else, um, eventually those narratives start to eke out either through your actions or your words. and, And oftentimes, you start to realize that there's an incongruency between what you're thinking and what's really happening in reality. And, um, f- for me, that's a huge thing of what's, what started to, and still to this day, like this is something that I, I work on, on, on a regular basis is trying to confirm whether or not the narrative I have going on in my head, um, this, this piece of myself that's, I don't know, contributing to how I think and feel about my relationship, whether it's based on reality or not, whether it's based on truth, like it's so easy to, I mean, here's a simple example that happens all the time for me like I'll I'll be in the kitchen or something and I'll look look at my wife and crack a joke and she'll kind of roll her eyes or sigh and I immediately think like oh my gosh she thinks I'm so annoying you know that eye roll it just drives me so nuts she hates me or she's so frustrated with me and 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 in her mind she didn't even think about the eye roll it's just something that happened or like the expression on her face doesn't match what she's really feeling inside, or the appreciation that she's feeling inside just doesn't get expressed in the way that she thought it would on the outside, and I make all these these judgments about it, and then it causes a conflict, and inside the conflict, we have to figure out, okay, where was the breakdown? Where is the breakdown between what each of us is thinking and then what what is reality? And that's where I think um, marriage comes in to help you start identifying those inner narratives. And when you start to realize that you have these narratives, you realize that you had them before as a single person. And not only do you have them about your wife, and not only do you have them about your marriage or your boss or your friends, you have them about yourself. And that's where I think all the growth comes in. A huge piece of the growth comes into play is when you're Mm -hmm. thrown into these situations where you're experiencing, I don't know, conflict or a dissonance between reality and what's in your head, you start to realize these stories exist and that you need to do something about them.
0: Yeah, it's almost like a it's almost like a burn the boats approach to to growth, you know, because you know and and like marriage is almost like a burn the boats approach to yeah. growth because you you ideally are wanting to find someone who, you know, when people talk about like uh, checking off all the boxes with a partner, you almost want to find someone like the biggest box of all is like who can I grow the most with.
1: Absolutely. And that
0: should that should be like the biggest box and if you can check off that box then then you really have the capacity. It's almost like you feel more comfortable with leaning into that space. Because I think one of the biggest things that I've that I've seen over the last, you know, however many years, is that we as individuals, we crave that expansion, and that growth and that development. And so when we can find a a partner that we can grow with and alongside of who's going to you know, push us forward and call us out on our BS and, you know, be able to help us label our parts, whether it's the the sabotager or the, you know, the insecurity that's within us. There's sort of this, um, well, there's a catch 22 that's there. We, we crave and desire it. But at the same time, we're so used to the inner dialogue, the echo chamber of hearing our own garbage, you know, our own limitations, that when we do get called out on it, or somebody does point out uh, you know how something might be an insecurity or uh, a dysfunctional thought pattern. We almost rebel against them rather than against our own internal narratives. So <laughs> it's kind of a, an interesting process. But you know, I, I I love your I love your approach to that
1: to to the parts. Thanks, man. Marriage is definitely an organization where you either grow or you die. Yeah. Those are the two options you have. I remember. Yes, I, I learned a really valuable lesson on on vacation a few months ago. So we had been given, um, it was either for, I think it was for Christmas, we were given some gift cards by a family member. It was like 200 bucks in gift cards. And we went on vacation a few months ago and we were going to use our gift cards on vacation because like we were going to splurge and do something fun together. And we didn't end up using them. And then we got home, they were, we had stored them in a fanny pack because we're classy like that. We carry around a fanny pack on vacation. And when we emptied out the fanny pack, my wife looked at me and goes, Oh my gosh, where's the gift cards? And I said they were in the fanny pack. And she's like, I think I might have thrown them out with garbage. And I'm like, you threw out $200 free money. And I was so <laughs> I was so frustrated. And in my mind... This will give you a good idea of some of those like sabotaging and and just those inner narratives. I started getting so angry, and I'm like, "My wife is so dumb. How could she throw away two hundred dollars? Like, why? She knew they were in there. Why would she do that?" And I was just working myself into a frenzy, and uh, I had to calm myself down. I did. Luckily, I didn't say anything um, too like hurtful or mean, but the thoughts were there. And then, like two days later, my wife uh, walks in. This is so embarrassing. And that's why I'm telling this story. But my wife walks into my office and goes, holds up the gift cards. And I'm like, oh my gosh, where did you find them? And she's like, oh, I was doing your laundry. And I found them in the back pocket of your jeans. And so I was actually the one who had lost the gift cards. I put them in my back pocket. And I had spent like two days being angry at her for being foolish and (laughs) and thoughtless. And how could she lose $200 in gift cards when in reality, it was me. I was the one who who had screwed up and taught me like a very valuable lesson about myself. Like why do why would I so quickly jump to the conclusion that it was her and why would I assume that she is the one who is like careless and maybe I need to take a little bit more ownership of of not only my thoughts and feelings towards my wife but my own responsibility to like take care of things that are uh that we value. So it's little things that come up like that inside of marriage that teach you valuable lessons that if you're willing to hold on to them, they help you become a better person.
0: Yeah, great. I, I love the story, man. I feel like everybody listening can relate to that. You know, we've all done that at, su- at some point in our relationship. I know I've done that at least. Um, so yeah, I, I love the story, man. I want to get a little bit into into mediocre relationships. Yeah. And I want to get into them because, you know, I think that's like, that's like I, I don't know about you, but for myself and for a lot of the guys that that come and work with me, whether it's in you know one on one or in groups, they have this huge fear of committing to a relationship and then having it go down the path of mediocrity, where a year or five years or twenty years from now it's just like this stagnant you know sort of mundane relationship, and they fear that, and it becomes oftentimes the thing that that they live into. So. Um, I would just love to get your perspective a little bit on on what starts to create mundane relationships. And then the second part of the question is, why might that not be a good thing?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. So I... I would love to put a little bit of a definition on what makes a mediocre relationship or what is a mediocre relationship. Um, to me, a mediocre relationship is a relationship where you have the same disagreements over and over and over again without any change, without any like making a concerted effort to change the dialogue or change the outcome. Uh, it's a relationship where like I, don't, I think a, a big sign of a mediocre relationship is you stop making out. you stop kissing regularly. Like passionate kissing, mm-hmm. not just a peck. Uh, like little disagreements blow up constantly into heated conflicts. A, a lot of times, mediocre relationships come because you get so busy with life that you, you st- stop having time to connect, whether it's because of kids or work or other commitments. Um, sex gets less and less frequent. I think that's something that a lot of guys get scared of is get, getting trapped in a sexless marriage, a dead bedroom. Uh, I always hear, I'll bet you've heard this a, a million times. Oh, I just feel like I'm walking on eggshells. If you feel like you're constantly mm-hmm. walking on eggshells in your relationship, totally a sign that you're, you're, you're in a, possibly in a mediocre relationship. Uh, if you're constantly feeling blamed or criticized or like nev- nothing you do is ever enough, totally a sign of a mediocre relationship. Constantly getting defensive or shutting down in moments of conflict or name calling, lashing out. Uh, I think that probably the biggest one is when you start keeping secrets from each other. When you stop just sharing what's happening in your life and, and in your mind and in your heart. Um, and those secrets oftentimes lead to the demise of the relationship. Uh, so to me, that's those are some of the things that would identify a mediocre relationship. And to be honest with you, I think a huge percentage of relationships in the world are mediocre, unfortunately and a mediocre relationship isn't necessarily bad typically it's it's fairly comfortable and safe typically inside of a mediocre relationship you've gotten to the point where you've created enough kind of silent agreements that oh we're not going to talk about this thing or we're not going to we're not going to be friends with these people because whenever we bring up these subjects or these people come into our life we experience conflict and so you have this kind of like this it's kind of like a a tight rope that you walk Maybe it's finances, maybe it's sex, maybe maybe it's uh, career. But there's just certain things that you don't, you kind of don't talk about it, and you become comfortable with those boundaries, and you're just you're just comfortable enough that you, it's like you're experiencing just the right amount of pain that you can tolerate it without actually having to do something about it. It's like having that rock in your shoe that you can move into just the right spot, and you can still keep walking without having to take your shoe off. But the crappy thing about a mediocre relationship is that you're basically just like one bad day, one emotional explosion, one nasty fight away from a miserable, horrible relationship. I think that's the most scary thing about a mediocre relationship is how close you are to being miserable. So my my work, the thing that I am most passionate about in the world is I want to eradicate mediocre love from the world. I I would love to rid the world of mediocre love. I think the best thing you can do to prevent a, a like a miserable relationship, a miserable marriage is to have an extraordinary one. To have the kind of relationship where your partner wakes up every day and goes, "Oh my gosh." Like in your case, <laughs> "Holy crap, I cannot believe I am in a relationship with Connor. Like this guy is so amazing. I am so lucky." You know, you want you want your lady to be out with her girlfriends bragging about you, not complaining about you, going, "Oh my gosh, you guys, can, do you want to hear what my fiance did for me today? Do you want to hear what my husband did for me today? Do you want to hear how amazing my boyfriend is? Oh, he's I'm so glad I'm with him." If you have a a partnership where your partner is thrilled to be with you and you can maintain that for the majority of your relationship throughout the rest of your life, man, you're going to be you're going to have an incredible life. A lot of people, I think, just lose sight of that. They they forget the importance of that, and they don't know they know don't know how to create the extraordinary relationship, and so they get sucked into mediocre because it it becomes kind of the default. You know, it's the easy path. Mm-hmm. It's the path of least resistance.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the the interesting thing, and and you know, I think for just for everybody that, like listening, like I don't think either of us, um, you know, are are trying to shame mediocre relationships. I think what we're really doing in this conversation is pointing out how those things happen you know and i think that's the important thing definitely because mediocre relationships as you said are are really teetering on the edge of you know that one big explosion that one meltdown that ends up becoming catastrophic for the relationship and all of a sudden it puts it into a lower uh, you know, it doesn't, it's not mundane or, or mediocre anymore. Now it's not a good relationship. And then you have more blow ups and, and more arguments and that becomes a horrible relationship. And then it, it just keeps sliding slower and slower into the abyss. And, and, and that's a challenge. So it, it's kind of a catch 22 because, um, don't like, don't you feel like a lot of people are looking for a relationship that is extremely comfortable?
1: Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the hardest parts about, about my job is showing people that being uncomfortable is more important than being comfortable.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So how, how do we start to, uh, how do we start to invite uncomfortability? If that's even a word, I'm not too sure if it is, but I I may have, I, I just said it. So. Yeah, there we go. How do we start to how do we start to invite a little bit of discomfort into our relationship, and and how do we actually define what that discomfort is? Because I think that's important uh, also to just sort of bring clarity on.
1: Yeah, I feel like one of the best ways to start to invite discomfort into your relationship is to realize what is the consequence if you don't. I think a lot of people, uh, the pattern a lot of people go through is they get married to be happy. The person that they're with makes them so so happy and just makes them feel like. Everything is amazing. And then they stay married because it's comfortable. And that means we, we get into what I explained a few minutes ago, where you just kind of create these agreements that, okay, well, I'm not going to say this to you if you don't say this to me and we won't. And then we can just avoid having this argument um, or we can a- agree to not have this fallout. And we'll, this is just how we'll run our lives by just having this red tape in our relationship. And that'll make us both just comfortable enough that we can continue to live together and if that's the kind of relationship you want, great. That's, that's awesome. But if you want the kind of relationship that I described where your partner's stoked to be with you every single morning, they wake up every morning just excited to live their life with you, you start to realize that in order to create that type of relationship, you have to be willing to confront the things that are preventing you from... How do I put this? How do you tolerate discomfort for growth? How do you learn to take a look at the type of relationship that is your dream relationship and take a look at what you are now and be honest about the changes that you need to make to, to be the kind of person who's capable of creating the dream relationship. And, and that requires a little bit of discomfort, but there's, I feel like, uh, I love the idea that there are two different types of anxiety. And I think a lot of what prevents people from doing the work is the discomfort is often described as anxiety. It makes me anxious. And there's, the, on the one hand, there's the anxiety that's in, that uh, protects us from danger. You know, it's the the old lizard brain that says there's a tiger behind that rock. You want to be very, very careful if you're going to go that direction because you could die. You know, when you feel that type of anxiety, it's the anxiety that's your brain telling you, you are in grave danger. You need to protect yourself um, or you could get really, really hurt or killed. And then there's and, and just a, yeah, go ahead.
0: I just wanted to pause here. Is is that type of is that type of threat response? You know, usually linked to trauma or abuse or abandonment in, in, in childhood, or or is that just more of like a natural,
1: like instinctual response? I think it can be both. I think it could be an instinctual hmm. response, but I think a lot of time for people, it, it preys on past experiences that you've had, whether that's trauma, uh, whether whether it comes from your upbringing, whether it's abuse. Absolutely, I think that that, that can absolutely uh, rightfully trigger some of that anxiety, and and sometimes I think Thanks. it becomes a little hypersensitive. You know, sometimes the anxiety that we feel is the anxiety that you feel. This is a totally different kind of anxiety, but it feels the same. And it's hard to... One of the challenges of growing inside your relationship is learning to identify what type of anxiety you're experiencing. But the, the second kind, kind of anxiety is the anxiety that you feel before growth. It's before you do something new, you know, before you go on that roller coaster for the first time, or before you stand up and give a speech in front of a large group of people, or before you start a new job or on your first day of school, like you experience anxiety when you do all those things. But those are all things that aren't going to kill you. You know, your brain might be going, Oh my gosh, this is a new experience. I don't know how to process it. And so it might be sending up those warning signals. But most of the time that that anxiety is just the anxiety that is accompanied by growth and if you want to experience growth in your relationship that means you're going to have to learn to tolerate some of that anxiety and learn to dif- to identify when the anxiety you're feeling is is good anxiety that's an, that is an, in anticipation of growth and when that anxiety is um like self-preservation anxiety and i think the majority of the time especially if you're in a relationship with somebody who really does love you and care for you the majority of the time the anxiety that you're feeling is growth anxiety but oftentimes, the way we treat it is like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die. And so I got to stop doing what I'm doing.
0: Yeah, I, I like that. I think one of the one of the perspectives that I've always taken is that 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 growth is almost like a tension. You know, if you think about working out the most of, the most effective and impactful part of, of working out is actually the resistance and that you need yeah. that you need that weighted resistance in order to create growth and change within your body. And so the the same thing is, is the same thing happens within our relationship, but it seems counterintuitive, right? Like it seems counterintuitive because our brains want this sort of peace with, you know, and and calmness within our relationship. And so, you know, it never really wants to rock the boat. And, and so we avoid the tension and the resistance, um, that's actually required for the type of growth that that can be very beneficial personally and relationally and and intimately within our you know, within our lives. And I think one of the other things that was interesting about what you're talking about, um, and I just wanted to get clarification on, is in and around the anxieties. And one of the things that I see a lot of within couples, and I would love to get your perspective on this, is that they are able to, the individual is able to label and identify their anxiety, right? So it's like, well, you know, I am this way because in the past, you know, when my parents got divorced, um, you know, my dad yelled a lot. And so now I can't I can't handle you raising your voice. And so that that anxiety, that awareness of that, that you know, fear almost becomes a block in itself because people are able to identify their anxiety, but then they don't ever want to do anything yeah. about it or move through it. How how do you address that? Is that just about leaning into discomfort or or how how do we encourage people to lean into this space of the unknown of being able to work through that rather than it being the label that blocks intimacy and connection
1: yeah that's a great great question i think i think it starts with an agreement inside your relationship that you both are going to be committed to growth and when you have that agreement in place it allows you to revisit revisit disagreements or revisit difficult conversations and um, I think this is something that more people would actually really benefit from: is having a conversation about the conversation. Does that make sense?
0: Mm.
1: So, like,
0: I think so. Yeah. Okay. Can you, so you unpack a let's,
1: let's let's use that example that you just gave. Let's say you know your partner comes to you and says, "Look, I was raised in in a household where my dad yelled at me all the time, and it, 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 I just shut down. I just cannot. I don't respond well when people yell at me. And so when you started to raise your voice, I shut down, and that's why." the conversation that we had went the way we had like that's that that's the situation that happens so after that situation happens you know when things have calmed down and you've gathered your wits about you and your heart rate's down and your partner's heart rate's down like go for a walk and say hey let's have a conversation about how that conversation went do you notice any any patterns that we have in, when we have disagreements or when we, when we don't see eye to eye on things? What are the things you think we do really well when conflict arises? And what are the things that you think we could do better? What do you need? Like, what are the things that I do that make it really difficult for you to respond in a positive way? And what could I do better? And what are the things that I do well? And vice versa, can I offer you some feedback about things that make it could make this better for me? And um, as you start to have those conversations about how the conversations go in your relationship, you have opportunity to reflect a little bit. And I feel like having a conversation like that would give your partner in this case the opportunity to think, you know, this guy really isn't my dad. I'm treating him as if he's my dad and he's yelling at me. And I might be conditioned to, to respond a certain way, but he's not going anywhere. He obviously really loves me and maybe i need to to work on giving him a little bit more trust and tolerating when he you know gets frustrated and realize that i'm not going to get beat or i'm not going to get punished just because he's frustrated or upset and i think having those conversations is it's a process like it's not something that magically happens over overnight i think that the majority of the growth that we experience inside of a relationship is very small incremental I would call it like the aggregation of marginal gains, little things that add up over time.
0: Nice. Yeah. I like, I like to say compound. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like the, the finance, the financial term is like, you, you have these small wins where you would normally argue or address conflict in one specific way. And that, that that one specific way becomes the groove or the pattern in which you address conflict and and usually it's dysfunctional. You know, usually it doesn't yield the results yeah. that you want. But if you can, if you can do what you, you know, as you just described, break out of the the pattern, break out of the environment, break out of the, you know, the the sort of elevated alarm system that's going off in your body, and you can actually Uh, circle back to the conflict in a different conversation when everything you know different environment different uh, sense within your body you can actually start to reframe some of these anxieties and some of these obstacles that you're facing internally and that you're facing within your relationship so it you know it's incredibly beneficial on that note i I have always been curious um uh, you know about environmental conflict patterns and I've noticed with some couples that that, you know, I've worked with and some guys, a lot of guys that I've worked with is that they'll describe conflict happening within the relationship, sometimes within a very specific, I mean, specific environment. So I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the guys that I that I worked with a couple of years ago, him and his wife would always fight in bed. And so the, the bedroom and the bed specifically became this like anchor point, anchor point for just like. You know, <laughs> catastrophic conflict, and how important is the environment within our space when it comes to dealing with conflict?
1: Yeah, I think it's really important. I'll bet, mm. I'll bet that guy that you were talking to <laughs> did not have a great sex life.
0: No, not not at all. And my, you know, my immediate first thing was like, cool, like you know, when conflict does arise, actually take it out of the bedroom. Like yeah. literally, get up, invite your wife out of the bedroom, move it into a different space. Because you're energetically, emotionally, mentally anchoring that heightened, um, that heightened threat response into one of the most intimate sacred spaces in your home. Totally. And so, over the course of the next couple of months, he he actually started to do that, and it and it shifted the the intimacy. It shifted their conversation. It it really started to shift a lot of things. So, um, do you see that happen frequently, ha- like I- emotional anchoring w- within conflict or? Uh, how, how do we go about, you know, addressing some of these components and actually seeing them show up in our in our relationship?
1: Yeah, I, that's a great question. I have never been asked that question before. And I, I think it's really important to think about, like, not only where and it's not about how you have the conflict. I mean, that's a big part of it. But where and and where you have it and when you have it are also really important. Um, You know, you hear people give the advice of like, not... Not letting the sun go down on your anger or whatever. Like you should never go to go to bed angry with each other. Man, that's such a that's a baloney statement too. Where you fight, when you fight, and how you fight are all really important things. I remember, um, and maybe people will be able to relate to something like this. But I, I had a really nasty boss a couple of years ago, and he just made my life absolutely miserable. And I had so much anxiety going to work; it was just like really, really horrible. And then I finally quit and left left the job, and then like. 5 5 years later just just a few months ago I was driving down the road and I passed by the office and those same feelings of anxiety washed over my body just driving past the office and I was like oh my gosh this is a lesson like my my emotions are attached to the memories of this place where I had these experiences and it was powerful and so I I love the advice that you just gave like don't have disagreements in your bedroom ever your bedroom should be a place where you experience connection and love and great sex and intimacy and closeness. And you just should keep the bad juju out of the bedroom. A great piece of advice that I have heard is like, go have your biggest, most difficult conversations at a cheesecake factory. Like go on a date. It's a it's a loud restaurant. You're always there for a really long time. And when you're in public, you're going to be forced to keep your words civil but you can have the hard conversation and and do it somewhere that's not in your home. Or another great example is a, a great idea is to go exercise together when you have your conflicts. Go for a walk, go for a run, you know, go to CrossFit. And the endorphins that get released inside your body um, are natural painkillers. And not only do they numb the effects of physical pain, but those endorphins also numb the effects of of emotional pain. Uh, th- those. Physical and emotional pain often light up the same areas of the brain. And so if you need to have an emotionally difficult conversation, getting those endorphins kind of released and dumped into your brain first can help you with that conversation. And it helps you to not associate the negative energy or the, the negative, uh, I don't know, like the emotions of the, of the conversation with a specific place that should be, um, I don't know, kept, I want to say sacred. So
0: yeah I mean I, I think that sacred is is a great word you know it should we the, I, I think that oftentimes people you know link sacred the word sacred to religious, religious. Theolo- yeah. yeah theological context and that that's not necessary you know I, I think it's it's it, your your bedroom your bed it should be a, a sacred place and um, you know there's a lot of a lot of research actually coming out now around cell phone use in bed before bed. Um, just destroying sex lives. And it's, and it's quite interesting to see that a lot of people that are going to bed at night who would normally engage, you know, in some form of sexual activity, they've gotten into a habit or a ritual of, you know, getting to bed, uh, getting on their phone, going through whatever social media platform is their yeah. favorite, or watching YouTube videos or whatever. And, and they are, it was something like 60% less likely to engage in sex. And it's yeah. like, holy shit. You know, like uh, our habits matter, you know, and the bedroom matters. And, and it is a sacred place that we need to be cognizant of. So, you know, and I think the, the advice that, that you're uh, offering up and, and the wisdom that you're offering up is, is incredibly important. And it brings me to, to really a, a question around relational leadership. You know, because I, I would imagine that at some point, one person, one party has to be the leader that, that takes initiative. In in this conversation, by saying, "Look, we need to take this conflict out of the bedroom. We need to, you know, shake things up. Like we're we're heated, we're in it, and and somebody has to be the leader in that. So, you know, I, I think it it comes down to not just one person. Like, how, how do we how do we invite people into that space of being the relational leader that shakes things up, and does it necessarily need to be the man or the woman or those traditional uh, sort of rules." Uh, when it comes to conflict, a little bit less, a, a little bit less like uh, st- structural or adherent or
1: concrete? Yeah, I, uh, that's a good question.
0: I couldn't really find the right word there. I was like searching for yeah. a very specific word. But, you know, I, I think that when it comes to these conflicts, like somebody has to take the lead. And does it really matter who it is?
1: It doesn't matter. It doesn't Perfect. matter. But it, if there's, The one of the biggest challenges, uh, how do I put this?
0: You don't need to be PC
1: friendly. (laughs) No, 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 I'm not not trying to be PC friendly. Uh, I'm I'm actually not even talking about gender roles or thinking about that here. I'm thinking along the lines of... um, So there is a, a noticeable gap between what you know and what you actually do. And I find that this is where most couples struggle, where they fail is they know the right way to do something they know the right way to handle a conflict but knowing and doing it's not it's not there's not often a clear path it's like you know everybody knows how to lose weight and get in shape you eat healthy and you exercise but if you look around you the knowledge doesn't create the results it's the the, the implementation of the knowledge that creates results and there are millions and millions of obese people around us all the time and they all know what it takes to lose the weight. And whether or not they do it, that's a whole other story. And I look at the relationship space, and it's chock full of knowledge. You know, we've got podcasts like this, you've got books, there's therapists, there's seminars, there's all these great resources where you can go and learn how to have a great relationship. And most people know. Most people know when they're misbehaving. They know when they're doing something that's not going to benefit their relationship. They know when the argument is coming up or if they address a certain thing in a certain way, it's going to piss off their partner um, or hurt their partner. And they do it anyway, you know? Or they know what would diffuse the situation. They know that, like, hey, maybe we should leave the bedroom right now. Maybe we should go for a walk. Maybe we should, you know, take a couple of deep breaths and revisit this conversation in twenty minutes after we've had a, f- a few minutes to calm down. Or maybe I should be bringing this up in an, uh, you know, John Gottman uses the the term "soft startup." How do I bring this up in a gentle, kind way instead of like dropping a bombshell on somebody? Um, there's all these things that we can do that we can learn about to make conflict a little bit more easy to handle and to make our relationships more peaceful and loving and and kind. But whether or not we actually do them is a whole different story. So my my belief when it comes down to what you're talking about, like who should be in charge, man, the person that, that should lead on this is, is the person who knows and they should just... like You got to cross that threshold into taking action and putting into place the thing that you know. And sometimes that means you have to recalibrate decades of... Uh, behavioral habits it means you have to change you know a mindset that has been in your brain for as long as you can remember you need to think about things differently and behave differently than you ever behaved before but the thing that separates the one of the things that separates the the marriage greats or the relationship experts from those who get stuck in mediocrity or fail are the people who that's this is another a great way of tolerating the discomfort people who see who learn a new way to do something and then can muster up the gumption to actually do things differently than they've ever done them before even though it might make them uncomfortable in order to create a different result so
0: i love that and i i also love the fact that you said gumption on my podcast because that that's probably the first time that that word has ever been used which is amazing you're welcome Um, yeah! Boom! Just dropping, jumping the the, the gumption bomb. Um, you know, I, I think what you're saying is is so true. And you know, Vienna, my fiance said to me once, and it's really stuck. And once I really got it, um, it really made a lot of sense. It sort of summarizes everything that we're talking about. And, and she said, I, "I I knew I loved you because my need to prioritize your pain over my desire to protect myself was so strong." And I didn't understand what that meant at first. I was like, I don't, I don't get it. Like what, what pain? What do you know? I immediately went to like, well, I'm not, I'm not hurt. Like what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, but what I started to notice was that when I was hurt or upset, she had the ability to, rather than going into a defensive position, rather than taking it personally, rather than, you know, blowing the, the, the art, you know, blowing the conversation or the conflict into a, you know, a really heated space she could prioritize what I was saying and prioritize whatever I was hurting about. And, and I started to actually be able to do that for her as well, whereas in past relationships, you know, I couldn't do that. And so there was, in a sense, like she leaned into that space of being able to uncover and prioritize what was going on for me over her defensiveness. And it was such a great example of of being able to lean into the relationship dynamic and, and the things that we know we need to do. You know, so like you said, for everybody that's out there listening to this, if you know what you need to do, then you need to lean into it because like it's it's no different than at work. There's other two reasons why people don't do their job correctly. Either number one, they don't know how or they don't know what the expectations are, or number two, they they know how and they're choosing not to do it. Mm. And sometimes that duality, the reality of that duality can be enough where in the moment we can actually pause and, and say to ourselves, like, do I know how to shift this conflict that's happened a hundred times before right now? Yes. Okay. So am I choosing not to do it? Yes. And that can be the, the sort of like reality check and kick in the ass that we need to be able to call ourselves out and then actually create the shift and create the change so
1: definitely i just want to
0: offer, offer that up and, and i just want to end off because we're we're just running out of time here i just want to a- end off by by asking you you know about some of the the key components of what it means to be a really great modern day husband or boyfriend or partner. What is that what does that look like for you today?
1: Uh man, that I love that question so much cuz this is what I love talking about. Um, I mean, first and foremost, we've already talked about it a thousand times, but just being somebody who's dedicated to growth. And I've I've said that a couple of times today, but I want to I want to give a little bit more of like a tactile but actionable way to do that if that if that's okay. Can I, yeah, I can, can I tell can I tell one more quick story? Yeah, yeah, know, absolutely. Do you know the story of Dave Brailsford? No, good. Uh, so Dave Brailsford was um, in the early two thousands. He was brought on to manage Team Sky, which is Great Britain's uh, professional cycling team. And the reason they brought him on to manage the team, they gave him a goal: like we want you to win a Tour de France. It's never been done before for for Great Britain. We've never won a Tour de France, and we want you to make that happen. And he took on the challenge and he came on and the strategy that he brought in was the strategy of the aggregation of marginal gains or compound interest. And his idea was, if we can improve every aspect of cycling by 1%, all of those 1% changes will add up to a, a massive advantage over all of the other teams. And so they started out by improving by just a small amount. Several different things. Like at first it was the. The diet, the nutrition of all of the riders. How can we make them just one percent more healthy? You know, get that get that diet optimized. And then it was their workout routines. How do we get just one percent more out of out of their workout routines so that they're just like that? They have that much more of an edge. And then they got into the equipment, and it was like, okay, how do we give them lighter tires or more or tires with more traction? And how do we give them a more ergonomic seat so that they can spend more time in the saddle, just one percent more time in the saddle than um, than their competitors. Editors. And then they got into even more nitty gritty stuff. Like they got into optimizing how they wash their hands so that they pr- can prevent infection. Because if a, if a rider gets infected hands, he can't spend time on the bike because it's painful and, and, and bad for him. Or like which lubricants are the best, like the best lubes to prevent chafing so that they can spend more time in the bike in, in less pain. And they got into all these little, you know, they, they researched pillows and found the most comfortable pillow. And they took those pillows on the road so that their riders would get just 1% better sleep than all of the other racers on the track. And um, their goal was to win a Tour de France within five years, and they pulled it off in three. And then not only that, but in the 2008 Olympics... The Great Britain won over sixty percent of the gold medals that could be won in cycling. Like they just dominated the sport. They ended up winning like six Tour de Frances in eight years or something like that, and they just completely ended up dominating the sport. And they and their coach Dave Brailsford um, gave credit to this idea of incremental gains, and so that that mentality. Uh, it can be found in a lot of different areas. It can be found in business and in finance, in sports, and it can also be applied into your marriage. And to me, adopting that into your marriage is like, okay, I, I ran an experiment a few months ago. And in one week, I like my wife is a nurse, and so she'll work two or three days in a row, and they're really long 12, 13 hour days. And so, in those, there was like a, a period of days where I was like, okay, I'm, when she comes home, I'm going to have the cow, the house immaculately cleaned. And I'm going to have dinner waiting for her. And I'm going to have a love note. And I'm going to have flowers. And I'm just going to give her the most passionate kiss. I'm going to like pin her against the wall and just make out with her for a few seconds. And I did this for a few days. And at the end of the week, I was like, what did you notice about this week? And she's like, oh my gosh, that kiss every day coming home to that passionate kiss just made me lit up. And I'm like, well, what about the clean house and the flowers and the love note and dinner? And she's like, those things were great too, but it was the kiss that did it for me. And I realized that like one of the ways that I could optimize my relationship was making sure that I was being affectionate towards my wife because it meant so much to her. And I think sometimes we don't realize like what are the little things that make the biggest impact in our partner's world. Or something simple as like, okay, we have you know, thinking about your relationship and how you show up as as a husband, you know, uh, okay, we have the same argument over and over and over again. And it always starts in the same way in the same place. How do we maybe have a conversation about that, about how we can approach it differently next time it comes up? Or how do I bring it up in a different setting in a different way and see if I can get a different result? And, and start to like, really put a conscious effort into the the small things that can make a big difference. You know, it's something as simple as planning a really cool, different date night once every couple of weeks could make a really big difference. Something as simple as turning your foot... Like I know a guy, one of the things that he does, it's genius. He comes home from work every day. And before he gets out of his car, he spends 5 minutes meditating. He just takes deep breaths. He turns off his phone. He leaves his phone in his car. He meditates for a few minutes. And then he goes inside and he's, he's present. Uh, for his family instead of bringing his work stress in. and it's like a, it takes him three to five minutes every day, but it makes a huge impact. So what are the what are the little small incremental things that you can do that you have control over that can help you show up as a five star top one percent incredible husband? and that that's that's what makes, I think the big difference. That's what separates the, the truly great husbands from those who allow their relationship to slip into mediocrity.
0: Amazing! Amazing! Perfect device. I love it. It's it's actionable, executable, and uh, and is definitely going to to yield some great results for people if they commit to it. So, listen, man. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It was an absolute treat and pleasure. I feel like we could have gone off about relationships <laughs> for
1: hours, dude. Likewise, <laughs> I'm loving this. I'm loving talking to you. So, thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely, absolutely. And and uh, if people want to learn more about you and the work that you're doing. Where can they find you?
1: Yeah. I do a lot of my writing at first7years.com. So it's the word first, the number seven, the word years. And then I have a podcast called uh, The Loveumentary. It's like documentary, but with the word love instead of doc in front of it. Um, and those are those are probably the places where you're going to find the most, uh, the most fun relationship stuff that I do on a regular basis.
0: Amazing. I love it. Well, for everybody listening, definitely share this with your partner. Um, you might want to actually listen to this with them. So ladies, listen to this with your with your partner. Guys, listen to this with your partner. Um, and uh, until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Don't forget to man it forward, share this podcast episode or lady it forward. Uh, don't forget to, to share this podcast episode with just one person. It goes a long way. Uh, Leave us a rating and review. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual.